You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Kath Bicknell, a researcher, educator, and content creator. Kath's academic work relates to performance studies, cognitive science, anthropology, philosophy, psychology, cultural studies, and sports science. In this episode, we explore learning about learning and Kath's research activities on collaborative embodied performance and her recent collaboration with sports sociologist Christina Brummer. Within the cyclical process of success and failure, they ask the question, how is failure built into learning systems? Using participatory ethnographic research methods with no official goal, but looking out for what might emerge, the team enrolled in handstand classes at a circus skill to learn some new skills requiring them to coordinate hips, arms, torso and legs. Along the way, the team documented their experiences and perceptions as they learned new skills, eventually publishing their findings as a book chapter. Kath shares insights into skill theory and how people generally improve when acquiring new skills, until they don't. We chat about elephants and handstands, failure and flailing during their time at the circus school. The elephant acted as a handy metaphor for communicating about failure. We explore how people typically recover after the inevitable dips and blips of failure and how they develop a feel for correcting one's technique. We also chat about the role of emotion regulation and the benefits of keeping the learner in a lighter headspace to support the learning process. Kath reflects on the positives of failure, the value of supporting students and colleagues to fail, the benefits of having freedom to experiment and take risks, and to build in techniques related to coping and bouncing back. Here's my conversation with Kath Bicknell. So it's very nice to be chatting with you after so many years, Kath. Thanks, Mark. It's uh, lovely to catch up. Yeah, so you and I met oh, maybe five years ago on a, on a project, and I know that you have uh, a background in cognitive science or that type of related area. And we're going to find out about some of your um, later activities. But for the moment, I'm interested on behalf of the audience to find out a little bit more about who you are. Where have you come from? What did you study? What are you interested in? Or what were you interested in growing up? Or, you know, how did it, um, how did it get us to this point in time? You know, I was listening to some of the other podcasts in this series before having this chat, and I knew you were going to ask this question. We always say you. Yeah, but it made, me, it made me think rather than just tell, you know, what's my education story that got me to this. Like I, I do a lot of work on looking at how people learn, and I often do that by learning myself and being in that environment, so learning about learning by learning. And then thinking about what got me into that, I just thought about how some of those values formed and a really big one I realised was how important education was to my mum and dad growing up. So my my dad, he's a retired professor of astrophysics 
now. Wow. Which means he's never retired, you know. He's still writing mathematical equations about black holes and jets and extraordinary stuff like that. But he he nearly had to finish high school at the equivalent of year eight because his family couldn't afford for him to still go to school. So, you know, his his mum had a long-term health condition and his dad was disabled after the war. And what often happens in families with health challenges like that is it's really hard to make the bills balance. And it was scholarships for academic achievement that enabled my dad to keep going to high school. And then again, they go to university. And so he's never taken education for granted. And, and I was just talking to him about it the other day and he just says education is the biggest gift that you can give someone. And I've really felt that through my whole life. And my mum, her family, like my great-grandma was one of the first women to go to Sydney University in like 1904 or something. And my mum's older sisters, they they both studied teaching when that was a thing that women were sort of still able to do at university without causing too much of a ruckus. And my my grandma actually went to uni at the same kind of time period that my two aunts went. So, you know, education's been so valued in that family as well. And and one of my aunts now, she's part of this generation of women doing PhDs that they're completing in their 70s because they finally have that opportunity to, to do that. She's got just so much to say. And my other aunt, she's still teaching even though she's retired. She she still goes back and teaches at a school and she's teaching English to refugees. So I've just grown up with education being so valued for what it enables in terms of choices in life and the experiences that you have in life. And that's not just academic education, it's the opportunity to learn different sports or, you know, learn different musical instruments and and just experience these things. And so that's just really, I think, rolled into my own values and excitements that I've then started studying through my own education experiences. Um, so I, I went to uni until I ran out of things to study effectively. <laughs> and I did a PhD on mountain bike riding, looking at how people make sense of what they're doing and how they ride fast, but looking at it actually out in the mess of a mountain bike track rather than in a more controlled scientific environment. And then that led me into working in cognitive science for nine years, working most closely with Professor John Sutton, and we did a lot of work on skill learning and expertise. Um, and again, just just learning about learning and always always learning new things, new disciplinary ways of thinking about learning, new um, new activities of what the learning processes reveal about the activity, but also the act of learning. Um, and I think another thing that's really shaped that for me is I I have a connective tissue disorder, Ellis Danlos syndrome that I didn't know about until my thirties, but it means that my muscles work really hard to hold me in space. I find walking takes a lot of concentration. Sitting on a chair is quite challenging. I'm best when I'm moving and I think best when I'm moving and doing stuff because I'm not concentrating so hard on trying to hold my body in space. And so that interest in how we guide our bodies and how we move our bodies in sport and performance, that's the other thing that's really folded into this body of work on on how we learn and how we move. Really. Mm. I, I certainly like the holistic lived kind of aspect <laughs> of what you're outlining one of the things i wondered is what when you like with your your research in mountain bike riding what what had you done before that in terms of your study to to set a foundation for you know was it a psychology degree or was it a science degree or how did that 
what led to that later research just as a kind of like undergraduate or that type of territory? I started studying physio to learn more about how bodies move and how they move in a healthy way or how to get people back to moving in a healthy way. Um, But I found that as I was watching all these incredible lectures on human bodies and how they move, I was also interested in, in, you know, how movement was saying something about whether someone might be depressed or really excited and the behavioural communication that was coming through movement. So I realised physio wasn't for me because I would be too interested in these other things (laughs) all the time to to keep learning about pathology, I suppose. And so I swapped to a theatre and performance studies degree looking at... As you do. Um, oh, it happens all do. the time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I saw, I saw, um, oh, what was it? I saw Tina Arena in Cabaret. Yes. And um, I'd never heard that music before and the performance was, I wasn't even a big Tina Arena fan, but I was just, I was just leaning forward and I didn't want the show to end and I thought... You know, when you, whatever age you are and you've gone to uni and you're thinking, is this the thing I want to do for the rest of my life? I was thinking, I want to watch, thing, like the feeling I got watching that show was something I knew I could just learn about forever. You know, physio, I knew I'd love learning for four years, but I wouldn't want to keep learning mm. um, physio. So, are words adequate to describe this moment for you when you were? Transformative moment of. Um, what was it about? I know histor- the historical context of that particular mm. musical is kind of interesting and complex, but mm. you know, was it the music and the rhythm of it, or the tone of voice, or the whole setup, or you know, was it kind of the way that it got you moving? Yeah, I think, like, so as a, a teacher at universities over the years, I see a lot of students struggle with, am I doing the right degree? I think it's a pretty common question in that first year. It's like, is, is this what I want to do? You know, there's so much choice and you don't really know sometimes until you start doing something if it's giving you that excitement that you want. I think we were talking earlier about how sometimes it's just nice to notice what gives you energy and what takes energy in life. And if we get so many choices in life, why not? follow the things that give us energy and I'd say it was that in that moment, Mm. just that energy for being in that audience and and watching the show. and That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, without even overcomplicating it further than that, just this is something that I just get so much excitement from. Why not find a way to keep exploring? Doing it, yeah. Yeah. So within yeah. a lot of your you were doing teaching or as part of you know what you were you were mentioning, but then a significant part of where you led where you were led was doing actual research in mm. in kind of um, these sort of areas. Um, so can you tell us just a little bit more about that and what what's with the bike mountain bike riding? What does that? Oh, well, how did I end up doing how, research? And how did that happen? Yeah, we're still we've got a little bit of a yeah. foundation, but we got sidelined by by Tina Arena and Cabaret. Yeah, then get us back on track with how did it lead to this research in mountain bike oh, riding? And yeah, I- so so I guess what I so I was, I was doing theatre and performance studies as part of an arts degree because I loved learning. I loved being in the world of ideas and and discovering more about these, and then. When I, I left university and I was in a you know sensible grown-up job, I was just miserable because there was no more being in the world of ideas. So I went back to do honours in theatre and performance studies, 
wanted to look at how theatre is used in drug rehabilitation settings as a um, a tool for exploring all kinds of things. And wow, how is it used? I don't know because the ethics were so hard to get. I never did it. <laughs> but uh, someone in the department, Ian Maxwell, who later became my supervisor for my PhD, he just said, "Why don't you write about mountain biking?" Because every class I'd been to in my three-year undergrad, I managed to turn something about anything into something about mountain biking. So he's like, "Why don't you write your honours on mountain biking? Look at look at sport as performance, um, or through a performance studies lens, see what you can." What did you uncover? What did you uncover? Mm. So, so the, the the honors project grew into a PhD project. So, that's kind of the same thing. What I uncovered. Did you have a question? A PhD question? Can you remember it? Oh, look, it's really simple. It's not like performance studies has always talked about studying sport, and no one ever had it. it just no one had really gone in depth into sport. It, people do now. It's become really trendy. But at that time, no one had looked seriously at sports. So my question was simply, what can we learn about sport by studying it to a performance studies framework? Mm. And what can studying sport actually teach us about performance studies and the theories we use and the questions that we ask and the methods that we use? So, And then I just sort of really got free reign. <laughs> so, so I looked at... Um, Mountain biking is interesting because the place is always different. The trail's never the same twice. You know, people, it's not like swimming where you're racing in a pool that's made to certain standards. It's different every time. So, how does the place and the environment shape the way we move? And how does that shape the way we think and the different strategies that we call on? You know, and you, you get these descriptions from riders and they do a practice lap in really hot conditions but they'd be thinking about how it's going to rain in two days time and they'd be thinking what tires am I going to put on the bike and what's going to happen to this type of dirt when it's soaking wet and how am I going to remember this section of track and the skills that I need to use when it's a slippery (laughs) so it just kept revealing all this stuff about how people think and move really and you're you're talking to these people and you're writing down what you're hearing and then you're mm-hmm. compiling it into a report and then I guess that becomes a a research kind of a part of the literature. Yeah, it wasn't talking to people so much. It was my world and my community. But at the time, a lot of the top writers were writing blogs and they were self-funding themselves to go race over in Europe, like Australian writers race over in Europe. It's costing them a lot of money and they'd invariably get sick or something would go wrong and they have to get this magical thing called experience in order to do well. But I was like, what's the cost of gaining this magical thing called experience? And so I just started reading, and a lot of them were my friends, I just started reading these blogs and looking at these, you know, self-reports from writers after the event as not exact descriptions of what happened in those moments, but as um, reports of experience talking to the possibilities for problem solving in really complicated situations, I suppose. Um, so yeah, so the data was a lot of blogs. Um, and so then how did, I guess you kind of, um, maintained kind of activity in that general area of, I mean, what is the general area called? Is it, is it cognitive science, applied cognitive science or something or no? Is there a field that to which you belong? Yeah, I ended up working in cognitive science for a long time and we we talk about embodied cognition as a, a a part of cognitive science that we're really interested in looking 
at. But I think I'd, I'd sit with John, who I worked with really closely in cognitive science, saying driven more by topic than tradition. So let's explore the thing in the world and see what theoretical ideas we can bring into that discussion rather than knowing what you're going to find and knowing what theory is is going to work. Does that make sense? And then just the world's your oyster, you know. <laughs> and that fits with always wanting to keep learning more. It's like how can we bring disciplines together? How can we bring ideas together to keep learning more about these amazing things people are doing and always wanting to get better at doing? You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So I really like the idea of you starting with, say, a topic, and then you're kind of like trying to uncover some some of the mysteries in that realm. And so we were talking earlier. Can you tell us more about the topic of elephants and handstands? <laughs> sure. Do you want to know how the elephant handstand project began or what what we discovered? Well, it's not every day, you know, you find that you're asking questions about elephants and handstands. I'm not even sure what what, <laughs> what I'm asking, but I guess, I guess it's reasonable. What, how did it come about? Or what's going on there? Where did these oh. what are these elephants? Are they literal? Are they metaphoric? How do they are they the ones doing the handstands? Or is I it mean, people? What are, I've got so many questions. I'm a bit puzzled. So I'm hoping <laughs> to uncover the mysteries of, well, of this territory. To answer your question, the elephants are all of those things, and that's why they're so fabulous. So what, what happened is um, we had in our research team at Macquarie University at the time, we were called the Cognitive Ecologies Lab, and we had a sports sociologist from the University of Oldenburg in Germany visit us, Christina Brummer. And at the same time, John Sutton, who, who really led this team, he was getting treatment after a fairly urgent cancer diagnosis. And we had this extraordinary sports sociologist join us who had done ethnographic work on gymnastics. So, you know, sitting, observing people in, in gymnastics, looking at how decisions are made and how skills are learned. Um, and she was there. Like, what are we gonna? What are we gonna do? <laughs> what are we gonna do? Well, she's here to visit to work with John, and 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 John can't be here. And I'd been doing ethnographic work on the trapeze. Uh, again, learning about learning by learning the trapeze to see what that would teach me. And I just I I wished for so long that there was another researcher to do this with to see what they'd discover. Also, being in that environment and how they could challenge some of the things I was finding. So I said to Christina, why? while you're here, why don't we just go and do some handstand classes at the circus school, um, see what happens. <laughs> I didn't see, know there was a learn. thing called handstand classes. At oh, like circus yeah. school even is kind of a, a bit yeah. of a concept. Or a, a movement school. Um, there's, there's, there's lots of them around. But, yeah, it's it's totally a thing and it's, um, it's wonderful. And so Christina, to her credit, said yes. So she came to handstand classes for six weeks. With me, and and we we had no official goal of what we were going to produce as a research project. Again, we just wanted to see what we'd find. And so um, it's ethnographic. You mentioned that phrase earlier. Mm. Is that like in what is that? Ethnography is a practice of observing things in the environment where they really happen, 
and then finding ways to write about those things that are fair to how how they're meaningful in that situation and in that context. So how do how do skills get learned? You know, how, what do people say, but what does that really mean? Um, and and this is a participatory form of ethnography where you're not just learning through watching people or reading what someone's said in an interview. You're putting your own body in that situation to see what that reveals about the panic and the fear. And oh, so it was panic and fear inducing. Oh, what, what, oh yeah. Tell us what happened. <laughs> so, well, the elephant moment was the interesting one. So that was um, in each class. You don't just do handstands the whole class. You move around the room and you do lots of little activities that teach you a small part of handstanding and also help develop that tendon and muscle strength to be able to hold your body upside down. So um, this was an exercise where you you got your hands on the ground like you're in a handstand, but your body's making an L shape and your feet are supported by a you know a large vault or series of crash mats. And we had to cartwheel sideways off these crash mats to just practice landing. So instead of having to worry about getting the handstand right, we're just working out how to land, you know. And Christina landed with this massive thud and <laughs> and she was so embarrassed about it at the time. And I said, oh, maybe we're elephants. <laughs> and we just joked. We started joking that maybe we're elephants. And it just diffused the situation and it made it really fun. But what was interesting was two weeks later we were doing the same activity and we found ourselves talking about the elephants again. So the field note in the, the book chapter that this became part of, it's like, oh, no elephants today. Oh, my elephant's on this side, but not on this side. <laughs> you know, I have a small elephant. And the elephants, as a metaphor, they originally were something that was, you know, helping us laugh at a process that had gone terribly wrong. But as we worked out how to improve the handstands, they became this guide for, you know, how not to be an elephant, how to land lightly and gracefully. That when, and I can unpack that further if you want, but when you start Oh, yeah, please do. I, I love it. <laughs> So why the elephants are great is is they're, you know, it's a little metaphor. It's a really simple metaphor. But trying not to be an elephant helps you coordinate hips, arms, hands, torso, you know, everything to land. But is this a gentle yet brutal acknowledgement of Mm. the elephant concept? And then it's Mm. sort of like, you know, you move along from that, you know. It's kind of like the initial kind of, oh, I'm an elephant, mm. but then it's mm. like you, fu- you find it funny, but then mm. it's kind of like you're moving and working, I guess. It's expanding the use of that mm. as an idea, mm. and then it's helping you along ultimately by the sounds of it. Yeah, it became a diagnostic thing if you want to get. Diagnostic? More, yeah, if we want to get more theoretical, you know, bigger words about it. Diagnostic. It's a, like we diagnosed ourselves as being elephants. Um, oh, you've got a so shared was, language. You could say, yeah, oh, I'm yeah. an elephant today. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. But it's pointing, it's us realising as learners in this environment that we've done something that wasn't quite right. You know? Yeah. Those poor um, elephants, they're trying, but, you know, they're so, they're so bulky <laughs> <laughs> and wrinkly. <laughs> Which is how we felt too. <laughs> but they became what we would call then a feed forward mechanism, so a guide, like how to get rid of the elephant or not to be an elephant. And and we talk about this as a cue, you know, what's a really simple cue that guides this whole body movement. And and where it gets beautiful is it's there's a sound that lets you know whether or not you're an elephant. You know, you can feel whether or not you've landed like an elephant with that. Oh wow! Like like well, like when you clunk down, your feet mm. touching mm. the ground, sort of. 
yeah, you, you hear it, you feel it, you feel it in your hips, you know, when you've landed hard. You you can see it. You can How see embodied? It. Super embodied. Yeah. Um, you can, um, uh, what was I going to say? It's, it's got an emotion regulation element too, so it keeps you in a lighter headspace rather than kind of focusing on the frustration. Um, it, it adds a fun and playful element to the thing. So you start getting all these different layers that, come together and try not to be an elephant that helped us kind of what we call invent a correct technique for landing. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm just, this whole time I keep thinking of an elephant in like a ballerina's costume or something or, Mm. you know, like Mm. from a child's storybook or something like it's acknowledging the elephant. Well, it's the elephant in the room, I suppose. Mm. That's that's maybe why they, Mm. they say that. Um, mm. but yeah, it's but it's, it's acknowledging it, but it's it's moving beyond it or using mm. it as a point of reference, mm. as you're saying. It's kind of, and then I guess yeah, I like the fact that it's quite social. You kind of have this shared understanding, and then you mm. can hear, and you just really have to look at each other and go, oh, here we go, there, or you mm. know, you got that one, you you passed that point, you're developing, your skill is improving or something, mm. but you mm. don't need to verbalize it necessarily it's kind of, i like it's in you in the body type thing mm. in the mm. world it's in the world. body it's in a world in a context that takes into account the objects that we're using in the room the relationship with other people in the room you know we had you could look at the instructors as guides on what a good dismount would look and sound like we could look at other students learning so it brings in all these different aspects of this training environment you yeah, know, critical in, assessment peer yeah. assessment self-assessment yeah. Progression, skill acquisition, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and our own histories too. So Christina had done gymnastics before and knew what it should feel like. And I, in a physio context, learning to jump and land lightly on my feet as a way to not hurt my hips. You know, I knew that lightness was something to, to aim for in jumping, something I've been trying to do on my bike. So it brought in, you know, uh, knowledge from different times and places into this one moment of elephanting Mm. and and what we look for in ethnography is not necessarily going into some kind of environment go what am I exactly going to find today it's what's going to emerge out of this context that's kind of really interesting that's going to teach us something about something yeah so what is that what was that what was it when we so when we did this project we wrote out we wrote our own notes you know after every lesson that we didn't look at what each other wrote until about three weeks into the project and we'd both been writing about this cyclical experience of success and failure you know it's not just getting better and maybe you'll get a handstand this week it's like you get closer to it and then you get worse again and then you're good one week and then you're really tired and you're terrible (laughs) and 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 the elephants was a moment of of (laughs) not just being terrible one week and landing with a great big thud but how do we keep trying to be more consistent you know how do we keep acknowledging the fact that we're not going to be perfect at it but how do we keep guiding this movement in a better way how do we deal with the fact that we're constantly failing but always trying to improve in the project yeah i like i like the you use the phrase fail failure and flailing i think Mm. um but and then i like the fact that it's the failure is acknowledged and then like kind of almost like utilised in a way. It's mm. not like mm. it's a bad thing. It's kind mm. of like it's a necessary, it comes with the territory. 
it's kind of like you're using it in a um I don't know if the word's healthy. It's kind of like it's a it using it in a purposeful way and it kind mm. of which is taps into a lot of really interesting learning and teaching theory and practice of the value of failing and and what that looks like and how it can mm. be used. And so mm. when you were writing your notes, were you writing like mm. with a pen and paper or were you like speaking it into a recorder or they're kind of like, and what sort of, do you, do, were you, how were you guided in what you were recording? Like what sort of things were you in your notes? Um, look, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. You're looking at my little, my little <laughs> watch here and we, we don't have a lot of time, but. Well, yeah, to, to jump a little forward, um, failure and, and failing and flailing was, I think, for us, the most exciting thing that came out of that project because in skill theory, in philosophy and psychology of skill, not necessarily learning design theory, but in skill theory, there's always this progressive narrative about how people get incrementally better at something. And our experience in this environment was, well, that's not what's happening at all, you know, so let's talk about that. And so our our notes that we wrote, after each lesson, we just type them up on a computer as a almost stream of consciousness. This is what happened, but paying attention to the things that we found challenging or particularly surprising in that environment. And um, that elephant's moment was one that just encapsulated a lot of things together, especially this how you deal with um, what Christina had called following uh, Pierre Bourdieu as a sociologist, dips and blips, you know, what are the dips and blips in form? And, and, and they're kind of talked about in a pretty vague way or you get a feel, people get a feel for what to do. It's like, well, how do you develop this feel? <laughs> you know, how do you how do you know how to correct something? And, and what was interesting about not just the elephants but the exercise itself, so cartwheeling sideways to dismount from a handstand, was this was an exercise built into this learning environment to teach us how to safely land if we did a handstand and started wobbling and needed to land sideways. And so what I loved about this is in this practical environment, we've got an exercise teaching us what to do for the time when we're guaranteed to fail, right? So we're always going <laughs> to, we're never going to be perfect at handstands. We are going to wobble. And here's a technique that we're going to learn in advance so that we can land safely mm. when we don't get it right. And that wasn't accounted for in skill theory. And it's like, well, let's look at how we get a feel for how to land safely and and let's talk about the fact that we do fail and let's look at what happens in a learning environment when failure is built into the process in a supportive way and and recovering from those dips and blips is part of the process, not something that happens on the side or, you know, something to be fearful or worried about. And then in teaching us how to land safely, that also takes away that fear of failing which can cause all kinds of muscle tension and stress and actually inhibit trying to do a handstand well if your body's all locked up. So it kind of had two interesting purposes like that. And I think you're thinking about way more broadly for for people, it's like how is failure built into other learning systems or learning design? You know, what does it what does it mean to work with failure early on, <laughs> knowing it's gonna happen, knowing that we're not just gonna progress in a linear way. Um and, and for us, and can the skill theorists please look at this too and update their theory so that we can have a better theory of learning in that, you know, academic discipline as well.
You're listening to Perspectives in Parallel. So it's all jolly good to find out about handstands and elephant metaphors. And, you know, it's quite intriguing territory. What, on a kind of um, sensible level, if that's the word, what? how does this all relate to a kind of body of knowledge or, you know, how does it contribute back into kind of research in the field? And what, I guess what what's the purpose of it? What? How does it contribute or how do you use the these insights? Well, look, there's so many answers I want to give this question, so I'll, I'll try. <laughs> it was so about a quadruple-barreled yeah. question there. Yeah, but, I mean, that's good, right, if the elephants are prompting that much. So like, thinking right back to the beginning, why the bikes? You know, what did the bikes project show? And people talk about when you get really good at something, you, know, you don't think you just do. You know, this idea of that your mind is blank and you're just at one with the thing and you just do it. And I always thought, no, if I did that on a bike, like everyone would be crushing their brains out all the time because trails change and you can't predict what's going to happen with the rider in front of you. And that PhD just showed all these really amazing ways people are thinking, making decisions, predicting how the environment's going to change in three days and kind of assessing this stuff all the time. They're constantly problem solving and making decisions around it. So thinking is actually super active, even at world cup level, you know, the best people in the world. And so I started doing this research on well, what are the different ways that we think. And, and there's this whole area now of researchers looking at that, how do experts think while they're doing things. And, and that's been amazing. But in trying to debunk this idea that experts don't think they just do, and in fact experts do think, all the attention's been on experts. And then there's mm. just all this literature on novices are just so overwhelmed, they don't know what to do, and they're just following steps. And 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 so this project was going, well, let's actually look at what's happening in terms of thinking that we've learned that experts do, but how is that actually being set up right at the beginning of I, learning a new thing? I'm all ears because <laughs> it part of my role as a learning designer, I have to work with subject matter experts often in fields I have no experience in. And this is really common where they'll say, I've never really thought about what I do. And I think, oh, but I need to know. Can't mm. you just think back, retrace your steps? What are you mm. doing when you're making that decision? And a lot of the time they can't articulate or they don't know themselves. And especially mm. if they're a really experienced professional, mm. it's it's like they're doing it. And they're so good at doing it that they've, like maybe a long time ago when they were first learning, they mm. were kind of establishing their thought processes. But but so, yeah, this definitely resonates with me, but mm. I, I better stop talking and listen to what, what you have to say. No, I mean, it's really good to hear. It's always nice to hear how other people relate to these same ideas. It's like I can talk about the elephants and sound it make it sound like a bit of fun and and work should be fun. You know, you should find ways to put energy in that work. But but it, it was actually quite seriously thinking about thinking about how do we think, you know, or or how do we do <laughs> how do doers do. And when you look at experts, they often when things aren't going right, when we talk about those dips and blips or the fact that your body just it's not always able to perfectly keep performing the same thing, you know, often people fall back on, on like a well-learned phrase, you know, or something that helps guide and movement so mountain biking one I love is look ahead you know if you think look ahead 
you lift your eyes, you start looking further down the trail, your shoulders and torso moves and you start weighting the bike differently and anticipating what's coming up 10 metres down the trail. And it's this little expression look ahead that guides, again, a whole body movement that improves the way you move. But but in the elephants, is it's different in that we just kind of came up with it randomly ourselves, but that's maybe why it worked so well. But it's it's what's this really basic technique. How did it get learned that fosters this development of knowing you can rely on a couple of words or an image to guide a movement you know and and it's not just something people do when they're really good at something it's something that we teach really early on and as people get better they get more subtle in how they might call on these different metaphors or cues or nudges or ideas and they they keep trusting that these things work and so it's like let's let's look at how they get set up rather than the fact that people just use them and they work if that makes sense yeah, it's so um, like it's kind of almost a formation of culture or something. It's like something happened and then something else and then it's forms like around something and then after a long period of time, nobody knows where it first came from, but it's yeah. there. And yeah, it's- and Christina as a sociologist, her background would say, how do we look at this handstand class as a cultural practice in a socio-material environment specifically set up to learn this task? And so taking that frame to the analysis, we're not just looking at someone saying, here's how you do a handstand. We're looking at how all these different objects and activities in the room foster little bits of that movement and train our awareness into how you use your hands or how you use your feet or how you knit together your torso or how you protect your ribs. So so you start seeing the instructions from the other coaches as being important. You start seeing the objects, the lesson design. You start seeing that peer-to-peer learning and banter has actually been really important in that you start seeing your own body awareness and your histories about how your own body moves or changes over a certain day. So it just kind of expands that viewpoint from a learning point of view, how do all of these things come together in teaching this new thing? But then also how how can we draw on objects and people and places and different types of awareness to deal with that variability or failure when it inevitably Happens. So, how do we increase our toolkit for troubleshooting something? Does that make sense? Yeah, like um, I guess it's sort of surrounding one in kind of. Well, I keep thinking of scaffolding, but it's yeah. like surrounding yeah. ourselves in um, supports or guidance yeah. or things that'll gently nudge us back in and help yeah. us along our way. Which is kind of like this yeah. whole ballooning process is occurring, but then yeah. it's like, well, without any of those supports the mm. person might injure themselves or mm. they might be so intimidated that they they decide not to opt out and it's all too much for me so yeah. it, it is very interesting and i guess it's quantifying quantifying those so that they they can then be worked up into a thing into little little or big kind of mechanisms or whatever you how did you yeah. phrase it before with the mm, i like what? the word scaffolding that you just mentioned earlier in this it's and that's that's the word that we use as well how do you scaffold the development of some kind of movement practice or new skill and and another of the when you ask you know why why are we doing this what does it offer you know for me in cognitive science so much research on how people perform skills happens in really controlled experimental settings where you control so much of the situation that you inadvertently get rid of I know what. I guess the typical is that um, work health and safety 
with person mm. that you will never meet that sits in that chair at right angles with their hands mm. out. Do you mm. know the one? They're in, they're, you see a diagram of the, mm. the kind of WHS, the standard kind of when you start a new job, this is how mm. you, you need to correctly sit at a desk. Mm. And it's so, and it's sure it's got value and it helps mm. us to understand what our posture needs to be and our, mm. the angle of our knees, but it's so kind of... Well, it's so clinical or, you know, it's not in the mm. real world because it's sort of mm. office chairs look different and there's different types of desks and different mm. environments and then that's just for people that sit at a desk. But mm. I don't know, I'm just thinking of the infinite number of real world contexts that are sometimes those very clinical controlled situations are not, mm. well, they inform us to a point and I guess- yeah. Yeah, they tell us some amazing stuff, you know, and that's how we learn some incredible things about what people can do in the world. But we need other studies as well, looking at the environments where we really do these things to see what else shows up that we can then maybe examine in other methods later on. So so I love the real-world studies in that way, you know, for what they do. But the other thing that's interesting about this project is if you've got a whole bunch of research on experts and expertise, sometimes that scaffolding has been taken away by the time that they're really good at doing a handstand at the top of a diving board at the Olympics under enormous pressure. You know, <laughs> you can't see the different scaffolds that they used early on. So they're, they're missing, missing the role of those things is missing from the study. When we see, were- I'm just thinking about, you know, it's human nature sometimes when, like, say you're running an art class or something, and if you get somebody that's done some construction lines, they do them gently, so it's specifically so they can rub them out and remove them later because a lot of people don't they it's culturally understood you don't always like to show you're working you know mm. because then it's mm. it's 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 diminishing the value of the the wow factor of the what you've produced it's mm. sort of like a little bit of without getting into like the um you know what's behind the curtain and the wizard of oz or something but it's mm. that kind of i'm just thinking is that type of thing uh a kind of thing, like a kind of, you know, people don't, they, they want to showcase or they, I don't know, I'm sort of rambling a little bit here. I mean, that's making me think like, yeah, you're right, we do we do make those early learning supports invisible, you know, and, <laughs> and then we create this false idea that we don't need them. But having grid lines helps someone keep something to scale or to, yeah. to draw a straight line or get perspective right. So those little grid lines or, or whatever you want to use or call it guides in that process it's actually another tool that's protecting against an anticipated challenge or struggle right like you know that you're going to go wonky <laughs> so you put them in and then you can make them disappear later um but if you only study someone who knows how to do it at the peak of their experience without needing that as a tool anymore or you just don't look at the role of that as a tool then are you really studying the whole learning process and are you learning best how to teach someone that skill so that they can you know, perform it for themselves. So, yeah, for us, it was it was just it was just an exciting project to go. Okay, well, we've studied experts for so long, but actually, let's let's look about how some of these things develop, and let's 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 look at some of these processes in a room with people in a context, and let's look at the role of failure. Let's look at how that's prepared for and scaffolded, and and let's start talking about that and um, seeing where that gets us in a positive way rather than something that should be feared all the time. So I really like the idea of 
and we talked about this earlier, the idea of acknowledging failure as as a kind of positive almost and, and incorporating that or designing for that really so that we're we're kind of incorporating that into our instruction process, however, whatever that might look like. Mm. So can you tell us a, a little bit more about what are the what are the kind of maybe approaches or, you know, what do you how does one utilize these insights? So I think the take-home message for me from this you know, tiny project as part of a much bigger interest in how we learn and how we perform under pressure is that often when you look at people doing something high risk, the the awareness of failure is built into that process. You know, you've got crash mats or um, like when we were chatting earlier, you talked about firefighters and you, you trained in a simulated environment before going into the real environment. So when we're aware of that risk and we're aware of the consequences of failure, we, good learning does tend to build that in or people die. <laughs> you know? But I think, you know, I also work in media as well as research and I think in in the jobs that aren't life and death where I've performed best in those jobs and had the most innovative ideas and um, sort of really contributed to something, they're those environments in a workplace where I'm supported to fail. You know, and that might be in media. That might be when I work, I work at SBS in the sport department and, and my first manager there, he, I'd write opinion pieces, but there was never a, you never had to get a certain amount of success on that opinion piece. It could completely tank and you were supported by your workplace if it didn't go well, but then you've got that freedom to experiment, play with different ideas, and that's where you get some of the winners because you take those risks in a protected environment. So I think... You know, the lesson from this work is how do we support other people in our own workplaces to fail? How do we support our students to fail? How do we build in coping and bouncing back from setbacks into that process? And and also, you know, we often make things about ourselves, like how how do we feel when other people support us to fail and what's happened there? And I just encourage people to reflect on on those processes, you know, how they've been supported to fail and what that's meant and how they can build that in to support others and and see where it goes and acknowledge it as a positive, acknowledge it as part of a successful process rather than a sign of something not necessarily working. In this episode, I chatted with Kath Bicknell. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including a link to Kath's website and her various research activities. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Perryville.